You're listening to a podcast from Columbia Christian Fellowship in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Our services are weekly at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. here, aren't you? You're not a figment of my imagination. Like during COVID when we couldn't meet and you guys all put your pictures on pieces of cardboard and snuck into the church and put them on the pews. I didn't know that. And when I came in and saw those pictures, I lost it. That was so awesome. But you are here now in person, right? And so you can speak out if something strikes you, right? Okay, good. Small crowd, God has something to say to us today. I wrestled with this message. I thought, and I kind of lamented to the Lord, that this message isn't really practical. I mean, Ray comes up and he shares his traps and how Satan baits us, and that's practical. Steve comes up and shares on choices that we have to make every day. That's practical. I'm preaching through the book of Acts, and some of the stuff in there is not very practical. Right? Well, let me continue. So I was complaining to the Lord that that's really not that practical. And his response right away to me was, you don't need practical. You need radical. The church needs to become more radical, more aggressive, more bold, not arrogant and cocky, not odd, but more radical, abandon, radical abandonment to serving the Lord. Everybody's giving shouts out. That's the lingo today, right? I want to give a shout out to Ray. Thank you for filling the pulpit two weeks ago. Shout out to Steve filling the pulpit last week. You both did fantastic jobs. I had much positive feedback. The last time we spoke, when I was in the pulpit, we were still in Acts chapter 9. We'd already passed through the conversion of Saul, became the Apostle Paul. And at the end of Acts chapter 9, we looked at some escapades of Peter. Now, don't let these words just roll off my tongue and off the top of your head. Let's think about what is being said today. In Lydda, the town of Lydda, Peter healed a man who was crippled and bedridden for eight years. Please just stop and think about that. That's so easy to say, but think about what's being said. Peter healed a man instantly who was crippled and bedridden for eight years, and the man rose up and walked. He was healed. Think of somebody you know that's in a wheelchair or in a hospital bed. It seems completely impossible. But those are the sorts of things that were happening in the church. God through his church by his Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Peter leaves Lydda, goes to Joppa, another town in Israel, and he raises Tabitha from the dead. Stop and think about that. Tabitha was dead 
She was anointed for burial, which could equal our embalmment. And Peter raised her from the dead, brought her back to life. Practical stuff, radical stuff. Today we're going to move into Acts chapter 10. It's another account of Peter. And from his example, we get our title for today. A great way to live life. What a great way to live life. From the account of Peter after Pentecost, we can find an exciting way to live life. A rich, full, meaningful way of life. A reason for living. An antidote to melancholy, to depression, to merely going through the motions of life to being caught up in the morass of everything that's going on around us and finding ourselves angry or bitter or depressed, suicidal. A primary reason folks give for even thinking about suicide is there's no meaningful reason to live. It's the number one reason of folks who tried to commit suicide and survived gave as their reason. There's no meaning Life is meaningless. I went through a period like that before I got saved. Went through a period like that after I got saved. But thank the Lord, he brought me out of it. Another reason people give for taking their lives or trying to, attempting to take their lives is they're just overwhelmed with the negatives of life. Life is negative. Check yourself. When you wake up in the morning, is the first thing you think about something positive or is it something negative? Most of us wake up with negative on our mind and it's an effort to turn it to the positive. Today God wants to offer us, his church, believers, his people, followers of Jesus, an alternative to meaningless living. Amen. Yeah, where's art? I need Art's amen. Some, you guys got to fill in for Art. Today, God wants to offer us an alternative to meaningless living. Amen. We're going to divide the narrative into two segments, and the first segment ha plays into the second. We have to cover the first part of this in order for the second part to make sense. So we're going to check out this narrative in Acts chapter 10. Um, there's a purpose Hold on, Deb. You do come up here sometime. You can come up a while. I forgot I wanted to say this before you read. There's a purpose today. And the purpose is God wants to stir desire in our hearts, to stir expectations. Too many of us are just going through the motions. Too many Christians that I talk to complain just as well. Believers complain just as much as unbelievers. Believers are just as downtrodden as unbelievers. Believers are just as sick as unbelievers. And brothers and sisters, that should not be. If we're just like them, and I never like to divide us and them, but in this case, if we're just like them, then what do we have to offer them? Amen. Come on. Today, God wants to move us towards a greater awareness, a greater experience, a greater involvement of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives, a radical abandonment to following Christ. That's where you find meaning to life, when you're radically abandoned. If you're straddling the fence and you're trying to live for Christ, but you're trying to live for the world, you're one of the most miserable people on earth. Satan owns the fence. Get off the fence. We know God intellectually. We know that God exists. Most of us, I think all of us in here, we know God by faith. That's infinitely more important because we know him intellectually and then we put our trust in him through his word. But where we lack greatly in the church today is we do not know God very well by experience. Like Peter and his contemporaries did. Stand with me, please. Honor God's word. Deb's going to read Acts chapter 10. It's rather lengthy, but pay pay attention. Verses 1 through 33. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While Peter, 
While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Thanks, Deb. Thanks for being willing to read such a large, a lengthy passage. You may be seated. So before we go on, I, I neglected to do something, and I didn't make the person aware that I'm going to do it, so I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. But you all saw the text go out of this dramatic healing of a person who had tears in their knee, excruciating pain, and was planned for surgery, correct? Dot, will you stand? Is that true? Doctor called off the surgery. He told you your knee was healing itself, right? Amen. All right, let's break down this passage that Deb read. It's a long one. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor, and he prayed regularly to God. Okay, so what do we think about this man, Cornelius? It seems like we'd say he was a good man. He was very religious. He believed in God. He believed that God existed. The problem is, that's not enough. This is very significant. We have to cover this part before we can understand the second part of this story. He believed in God, but that's not enough. Cornelius believed in God. But take a look at what James says. You can believe all you want that there's one true God. That's wonderful. But even the demons know this. And they tremble with fear before him. Yet they are unchanged. They remain demons. Just believing there is a God, just believing that God exists is not enough. Believing, which in our language means mental assent, is not enough. It does not bring salvation. Even Satan and his demons believe there is a God. It's not enough. Many people say they believe in God. Maybe not as many anymore today as before, but in this country, if you ask someone if they believe in God, you get almost a unanimous, you go, oh, I believe. That's not enough. It has not changed their lives. It has not changed their eternal destiny one bit. 
There's got to be more. There's got to be more than that. And that's the gist of this narrative. That's what this whole thing is about, that there's more than that. There's more than religion. There's more than just believing there is a God. Back to the text. We're all infected and impure with sin. Our righteous deeds, our good works, they're nothing but filthy rags. That's discouraging. That's apart from Christ, of course. That's before Christ in our lives. Human beings are infected and impure, corrupted with sin. And until that sin problem is taken care of, anything we do is infected, it's impure, it's corrupted. It may look good to the world. It may even benefit and do some earthly good. But it has no eternal value. It does not please God, and it does not impress God. Our good works, apart from Christ, do not impress God at all. You've heard the expression, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Well, that's the principle here. You must first turn the tree good, then the fruit will be good. Once a person comes to know Christ... Then the good works we do are good and pleasing before God. Does that make sense? Do you get that? All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, meaning no one is good enough. Not a single one. The entire world or the entire human race is guilty before God. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Or no one can ever be right with God by doing good works. What makes us right with God? Faith in Jesus. Faith in Christ. The thought here, and it's found many other places in Scripture, is no one can gain favor with God. No one can gain forgiveness of sin or eradication of the sin problem. No one can gain eternal life through good works, through being good enough apart from Christ. As good as Cornelius was, it was not good enough. A dilemma. What could he do? What can even be done? He gave to the poor and he prayed. Many people give and pray. Is that good enough? That's not good enough. That's not going to get you there. Wasn't going to get Cornelius there. So this is the end of segment one. We leave Cornelius at his house in a great dilemma. If this was a play, this is the end of act one. And we're about to begin act two. Peter is about to enter on the scene. One afternoon about three o'clock, he, meaning Peter, had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor, they have been received by God as an offering. But now send for some men to Joppa and summon a man named Peter. God saw all the good that Cornelius did, but it wasn't enough. But it put him in a position that God could move him to a place. He was now willing to hear what would make it good enough. The gist, God sees that a person is sincere. It's not enough. Sincerity is not enough. Very many sincere people in hell. Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. 
Good works apart from a relationship with God is not enough. In that crowd in Matthew 7, one of the scariest passages in Scripture, people who thought they were going to get in did not. At judgment, they were turned away because they referred to their good works, not their relationship. If you read that, there's not a word that they utter about trusting Jesus or knowing Jesus. All they say is, but didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Well, it wasn't enough. Didn't I go to church? Didn't I put a couple of bucks in the offering plate? Didn't I try to be a good husband? A few slip-ups. Didn't I try to be a good father? Apart from Christ, it's not good enough. This is how God works. Anyone who is sincere, anyone who wants to know the truth, Anyone who's willing to receive it, anyone who will come to Jesus for salvation, God will make sure they get the opportunity. Their works will not get them in, but he will move them to a place where they can hear the gospel, the saving gospel message, because they're willing to receive it. So the angel who appeared to Cornelius instructs him, you need to call for Peter. God sees what you're doing. He sees your sincere heart. He knows all about this. Now you got to call for Peter. Sort of like Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Now you got to call for Peter. Peter can and he will help you resolve this dilemma. You'll get the truth. You will truly enter into the salvation and the eternal life of the Lord. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius made arrangements to call for Peter. And so at this point in the narrative, Luke switches from a focus on Cornelius, and he starts to tell us, he begins to tell us what's been going on with Peter. Peter went to pray. He fell into a trance. He saw the sky open. He saw a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in the sheet were all sorts of unclean animals. Well, clean and unclean. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. I've never eaten anything that our laws have declared impure and unclean. The voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. As Cornelius' men were on their way to get Peter... God was giving Peter a vision in prayer. We really don't need to concern ourselves with all the theological ramifications of this vision. It has to do with Jewish dietary laws and such. For us today, it's enough just to know that being Jewish, Peter had religiously followed the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He wouldn't eat anything that God said was forbidden or unclean. That had been his Life as a Jewish man in, in Israel. Likewise, this is where it gets very important. This is where the principle starts to come in. Being a good Jew, Peter had been taught that the Jews were the chosen people. Peter had been taught that salvation was exclusively for the Jews. 
and those who were willing to become Jewish. There was no salvation outside of that box. Are you with me? That thinking needed to change now. In Christ, all mankind, all races, all people groups are justified before the Father and can access salvation. Peter's thinking had to change. He had to get out of that box, that exclusively Jewish box. God was about to teach this truth that in Christ, all races, all mankind, all humanity is justified or can be justified through faith and have access to salvation. God was about to teach Peter this truth, first through the vision of of the clean and unclean animals, and now he's going to teach him this through Cornelius, who was not Jewish. Can you see where this is going? Cornelius' desire and his sincerity for God was going to now qualify him for salvation. But as we know, his good works would not. They were not enough. He had to hear the gospel message of saving faith in Christ Jesus. Peter was going to be the messenger, God's messenger, to bring Cornelius this life-saving message. The purpose of the vision, the clean and unclean animals, was to prepare Peter to receive and go with Cornelius' men. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Referring to much more than animals in the sheet, it's referring to lost souls. Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house as Peter was puzzling over the vision. So Peter's thinking about what in the world does this mean? The Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. The next day he, Peter, went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. So Cornelius' men arrive, and they explain the situation to Peter. And Peter's now on his way from Joppa to Caesarea. Be patient with me. We're actually going to get to the reason for our title, What a Way to Live Life. They arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. Peter told them, uh, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile house. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Oh, transition was complete. Peter got it. It's no longer just for the Jews. In Christ, it's for everybody. Do you wish that we would get it as quickly as Peter did in this case when God's trying to change our thinking on something? God has shown me I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, tell me why you sent for me. For the geography buffs, Caesarea was located on the Mediterranean coast. It's north of Joppa. 65 miles west of Jerusalem. Today, Caesarea is one of Israel's most upscale residential communities. So Peter's now in Caesarea, and he explains his side of the account, what was happening to him, including the vision. 
asked Cornelius, why did you send for me? Next slide, Cornelius gives his, his side of the account. Four days ago, I was praying. Isn't it interesting that both men were praying when God moved mightily in their lives? Four days ago, I was praying. Suddenly, a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Send messengers to Joppa. Summon a man named Simon Peter. So I sent for you at once. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. You talk about a a ripe fruit, an opportunity to win lost souls. He and his whole household are gathered there just waiting to hear the message. It's right up there with what must I do to be saved, right? Can you imagine the ripe fruit for harvest? Can you imagine the anticipation of Cornelius and his household at this moment? They don't fully understand yet, but they're on the threshold of salvation, of eternal life, of changed earthly life. Their lives are about to change forever. They don't fully understand that, but they know something pretty serious, pretty significant is going on. God sent an angel to arrange this whole episode. The angel appears to Cornelius. Cornelius at first is terrified, of course. God sent an angel to arrange this whole episode. No coincidence. Cornelius and Peter praying at the same time, on the same day, miles apart. The angel speaks to Cornelius about Peter. The Holy Spirit speaks to Peter about Cornelius. Then they make the connection. Hence our title. A great way to live life. What a great way to live life. In that awareness, in that reality of God at work. If we're honest, that's much different than many of us are experiencing. Can I get an honest amen or nod of the head? Or That's much different than what many of us are experiencing. That level of God, the realness of God at work, the things God's doing. Look at, look at Linda, look at, look at. Uh, inside joke. Angelic visitations, visions, very real visions in prayer, Holy Spirit clearly speaking, specific instructions, divine appointments, often with huge supernatural aspects to them. That seems to be a common occurrence. Every sermon so far, just about in Acts, I've been faced with the dilemma of how do I make this real to our people, to me, to our people, to a church that doesn't experience this? How do I make this real to a people, a group, a church, or at least a church at large that doesn't really even believe this is for today? That this happened once and it's okay that we know about it, but it's not really for us. 
Because that's not true, you know. And I don't know about you, but as I read Acts and prepare these sermons, I'm envious in a good way. I'm envious. I I want some of that. I I want to know and I want to experience God like that. And the first thing God has to do for us, for any of us who want that, is he has to break down the unbelief that has been built up in us. And in a sense, it's not really our faults. We are not intentionally unbelieving. We were born into a church, into a church climate that was already steeped in unbelief. This has already been stolen from the church, and we were born again into that and grew up in unbelief. And now God has to change that. Before he can ever do that, he has to change that. Before he can ever do these things in us, he has to first tear down unbelief and work belief in us. And if you have noticed, if you've been coming regularly, he seems to be doing that week after week after week after week. Is not my word like a hammer that smashes the rock in pieces, says the Lord. I'm convinced that what we're reading about in Acts is the way it's supposed to be in the church today. The church today is an exception to the rule. It's not the rule. The church then was the norm. The church today is an exception to that norm. And our world reflects that. Evil has gotten entrenched in our world, and the church has not been able to unseat it. Keith Green, the world is asleep in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. We have a core value here in this church listed under the heading of the church. The picture of the church that's painted for us in the book of Acts is actually God's standard for the church throughout the age. All that means is what was true for them then is true for us today. Because you're not experiencing it doesn't make it not true. Unfortunately, we've said this before, much has been lost or stolen from the church over the centuries. I've become convinced over time, the hammer smashing the rock of unbelief or whatever in my thinking, but I am becoming convinced over time God wants to restore lost and stolen ministry to the church today. And just a quick side note, the importance of obedience in experiencing the reality and the involvement of God in our lives. Both Cornelius and Peter responded immediately in obedience. Soon as the angel left, Cornelius sent his men. Soon as God spoke, or soon as the men arrived, Peter went down. He went with them without hesitation. All right, here's some application for today. It's interesting we have such a small crowd. But we're going to do this anyhow. Ephesians 3.20. Listen intently. Lord, would you open our ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us right now? Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you. 
and to accomplish all this. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream. Have you ever pictured yourself with the boldness to just lay hands on someone in a wheelchair and they get up and they're instantly healed? God is able to do that and more. I like some versions to say he's able to do immeasurably above and beyond anything you can think or imagine. So anything that you have thought about, I would love to see God do that. He can do more. I'd say everyone in here believes that he can do more. Many of us don't believe that he will do more through us. That's where faith breaks down. He can do more. But will he do it through me? That's where unbelief has its deepest roots. It will exceed your wildest imagination. What God is calling for his people today, you may have heard him, or maybe you haven't if you've been too busy. God is calling for radical abandonment. Erratically abandoning the world and the things of the world and a radical embracing God and his kingdom and his kingdom purposes for us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all those earthly things that you're so striving for, they'll be added to you. Do you know what it actually says they'll be given to you? All those things that we're fighting for, arguing about, working for, striving, God said, seek ye first, seek me first. The kingdom of God and my purposes for you and what I want to do through you. And all those things I'll give to you. Do we believe that? Can you quit that second job? That's funding your toys, not necessities. It's funding your toys. Beyond your wildest imagination, he will outdo them all for his miraculous power. Miraculous. You know, we tend to skip over words at times that we don't understand or that don't make sense or we're, Satan obscures it. I don't know. But he will outdo this through his miraculous power constantly energizing you. Miraculous. Supernatural. Not your own strength. Are you still with me? I told you it wasn't practical. It's radical. But God said, you don't need practical in these days. Not that we don't need sermons on choices. That's not it. Sermons on the bait of Satan. We need that desperately. But we need added to that this kind of radical abandonment to Christ. His miraculous, his miraculous power constantly energizes you. It's the power of the resurrected Christ in you, in me. It's in there. It, it really is. See, this is true. Experience is a liar. This is true. God's word is true. I want to close with a ministry time. And this is kind of interesting. But I'm just going to give you the, the, 
the story, you can decide with what you want. I was reading in our Bible read in one of the Samuels, and I became very impressed with how quickly God answered David and spoke to him. David would say, the Philistines are coming up against us. Should I go out against them? And the Lord would say, yes, go out against them. But are you going to give us victory? Yes, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to give them into your hands. Just that conversation, right? And then a little later at another time, he says, they're coming up against us again. Should I go out against them? Yes, go out against them. But this time, don't go out against them in a frontal attack. Wait till you hear the marching of footsteps in the trees, in the tops of the trees, and then go out against them and come back, come around from the rear. David said, should I? Yes. How? Boom. So when I was preparing this message, and this is not, this is not like a, what do you call it? I got to defend this. I don't have to defend this at all. I'm just telling you why we're doing this. When I started preparing this message, I had an impression immediately, before I even knew what the message was exactly, there was to be this ministry time at the end. And it's to involve the elders. And so I thought, I'm going to do what David did. I said, Lord, do you have any details for me on what this ministry time should look like? And bam, this is what came into my mind. We have eight elders. I want two, each of you, to go to the four corners of the sanctuary. You can go there now. Elders, if you'll go there now. Pairs of two, one pair of two in, in the four corners of the sanctuary. Go there quickly. I've seen you guys move faster than this. No sauntering. Now, if you're way back there and there's no people near you, just move up a little, move yourselves up a little so that you're near people. We got some huge gaps here today in the congregation. So we have the elders placed. And in a moment, they're going to be praying over those of you who respond to this call. Are you listening? Are you listening? Yes. Are you listening? Yes. I know you're listening. <laughs> Talking to the congregation. When you start praying, I want you to be praying that loud, too. Here's the call. It's a challenge from God. Radical abandonment. God is challenging his people to step out into radical abandonment. Whoever desires, whoever in here heard this message and desires to experience more awareness of God in your life, more of the reality of God in your life, more of his supernatural movement in your life, you want to experience more of this specific instructions, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, divine appointments, God leading you into things where he's going to do amazing stuff that's going to just blow your mind more often than he is now. More of him working out his kingdom purposes through you. If that's the desire of your heart, would you please stand right now? The elders are going to pray in a moment, and their prayer is important. But I really felt God gave me something to say for you to hear. The elders are going to pray, and that's going to be important. But even more important than that is that you are standing. You just committed yourself to him, and you're asking God to do this in your hearts. 
So you made, the, you made the statement. You made the important choice. Now the elders are going to seal that. And what I want to do is have all the elders at one time begin praying over us. You pray in English, you pray in tongues, you pray in both. I don't care what you do, but I want you to pray loud because I want us to hear your praying for us. And when, you, when the praying subsides, Sonny, bring the band forward. Commence praying. Thank you for listening to our weekly message. To connect with us, visit our website at blesscolumbia.org.